You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, we, we had a what was a fairly arduous UFC event to get through last weekend. Uh, right on the heels of an historic knockout of Ronda Rousey the week before that. And this weekend, we've got uh, another UFC event. Is this one Fight Pass only on the FightPass.com? Or is this is this one coming up this weekend uh, television? We're going to do television for this one. I believe this one is uh, Fight Pass only because, uh, yeah, it starts at like 2 a.m. in the one true time zone. Oh, it does? Yeah, so the we won't be. I won't be watching that. <laughs> no, no, I will, I will tell you everything that happens on this one, uh, using sock puppets. I'll tell you what. How about you, that? Wa- you watch this. Okay. As it happens. And then the following week for the co-main event podcast, you can come in and give me a, a play-by-play as though you're reading it off ticker tape. All How right. About that. Yeah. That sounds like something I would enjoy. <laughs> and, and, and me as well, sir. Uh, Ben, this episode of the co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Fulton and Rourke is a men's grooming company built for the way guys operate. Ben, Thanksgiving kicks off the Christmas shopping season, and rather than enduring the unholy disaster that is your local mall at Christmas time, CME listeners should consider hopping online and ordering some Fulton and Rourke products for themselves, their husband, their brother, their dad, or any other man who deserves something better than a sweater this Christmas. That's right, Chad. Fulton and Rourke's colognes, soap, and shave cream are all made here in the U.S. of A., and they're made with the finest ingredients available. For the winter, FNR recommends their cologne, Shackleford. With notes of sandalwood and warm amber, it's a great fragrance for the season. I'm wearing a little Shackleford right now. You know, I was going to say, you smell lovely, as usual. Uh, manly, but somewhat refined? Thanks, buddy. CME listeners can save big bucks on their next purchase by going to FultonandRourke.com, that's R-O-A-R-K, and using the promo code CME. Everybody you know will thank you for it. Three rounds as usual for the co-main event podcast, which frankly is a relief after last week when we ventured into the championship rounds. And uh, I'm going to say our cardio failed us. I'm still not recovered. Still not 100%. You look know what you had to do is look into a uh, an ice bath. Fill up a, uh, a garbage tub with icy water and plunge yourself right in. Ain't nobody trying to get in a garbage tub of icy water. How about a little, uh, little HGH in my blood plasma? If there you, know you what go. I'm now that'll set you straight, my I friend. Would, tell me whatever the the easy path is. I want to take that one. Are MMA fighters still filling up garbage cans with icy water and plunging themselves in? I have not watched uh, the Ultimate Fighter or Embedded <laughs> recently, so I have not. I'm not sure. I think I think they probably you are. Think that's still widely practiced. Yeah, I think when you get done a long day of hitting a big ass tire with a sledgehammer, you want to jump in an ice bath. That's, I mean, it sounds pleasant. In round number one, Neil Magny and Kelvin Gastelum had themselves a good little fight on Saturday night. If you manage to reset your circadian rhythms and stay up long enough to see it. And in round number two, a second straight welterweight fight for Benson Henderson against Jorge Gamebred. Mas Vidal is in the offing this weekend. But will it be Bendo's last in the UFC? 
That's at welterweight, right? Doing that at 170 or 155? You, could you be, wanna, could you, be either. It's at welterweight. Okay, good. I'm glad we fact-checked that before I read it live Ooh, on the podcast. Yeah. If you look at the notes, you will notice that it's all written uh, normally except for GAMEBRED, which is in all caps. I can confirm that. that's how you say it. I that. was wondering what happened to your voice. I see now you got hit with an all-caps attack. GAMEBRED! Round three, what in the world is going on over in World Series of Fighting? And is it against the rules? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Ben, the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dennis Johansson. He writes, is the pacing of the UFC's events on TV starting to become their biggest problem? It's not helping things. I'll no, say that much. No, it's not. This, I'll tell you what, Ben, this past weekend uh, was, I believe, the second time in my pro mixed martial arts writing career when I have turned off the UFC and gone to bed rather than watch the whole thing because I had already what a nice luxury for you I had already started to get the get the feeling that I that I wasn't going to have to write anything about this particular event and uh because I, ain't nobody give a damn is I, that why exactly that's exactly why uh so I checked out before Formiga and Cejudo I didn't even like cuz I was I wanted to watch Diego Sanchez fight I was interested in Kelvin Gaslam and Neil Magny that fight actually turned out to be better than I thought it was going to be even uh we'll talk about that in round 1 but uh yeah man I punched out and uh got myself some sleep and then woke up the next morning to discover that even though I had extended my DVR recording time by 30 minutes it still cut off the last <laughs> round of the main event you know, I'm interested in the timing you mentioned of when you decided to check out prior to the Cejudo, uh, Yusei Formiga fight. So you're saying during what the second of the two tough finale fights, that's when they lost you? I, well, I, yeah, after I'd suffered through both of those and I looked. I so checked. you made it all the way through those and then you quit? <laughs> I watched the worst part and then I checked out. <laughs> uh, yeah, because last week on the podcast, it, it appeared from the listings, the way the Wikipedia entry was, was laid out, that they were not going to put the tough Latin America 2 finale fights, which is a mouthful all in itself, on the main televised card. Which I th- and we gave them kudos for that. Yeah. We were like, hey, all right, UFC, forward-thinking progress. And then it turned out that that was not true, that well, they really it wasn't did that it was, put the, I the think finals true of the Satisfactory the- Fighter Latin America Season 2 on the television. I think it was true at the time that we recorded the podcast. I think that was a late change by the oh, UFC. So someone came in with a brainstorm. It seemed that way because it seemed like from everything that they put out, that was the order as we saw it on Wikipedia. Uh, and then a couple of days before the fight, it was, oh, no, wait, those two tough finale fights are going to be on the main card. And I wrote a column about it yesterday saying that basically, please stop doing this. Especially for, you know, I'd say for all the tough finale events, but especially for the ones where it's like the tough finale Latin America 2, where the audience back here in North America was barely aware that there was a tough finale Latin America 2. A lot of them not aware there was a tough finale Latin America 1, man. Uh, and then you ask them to sit through these fights where not only do we not know who these dudes are for the most part... They're UFC newcomers, so it's not going to be the highest quality. And then we also have to, of course, sit through the video packages to tell us who the hell they are and where they come from and what they've been up to. So it's a long time. It was like 80 minutes blocked off to do these two fights before we got back to, to UFC fights. But I do think, especially if you're, you want people to stick around for the main event on your, your Vox sports cars, especially because they're not the, 
deepest fight cards. The main event is sometimes, you know, something that might kick off a pay-per-view event. You need that to really be the, the centerpiece of these events. That's the big promise you're getting people to tune in for. But if that doesn't happen until, you know, 11 o'clock in our time zone, you know, 1 a.m. on the East Coast, you are really asking a hell of a lot of the viewers to sit through. Or you're just telling them, you know what, don't even bother trying to watch our sport live, which is a problem if you're a sports company because that's one of the big appeals of sports to advertisers and, and networks is live sports is still one of the few things that people will watch live and sit through some commercials for rather than you know just DVRing the way they do with TV shows. Yeah, we've said it before, I think, on the show, but it bears repeating, and that is that the UFC used to be a product that you absolutely had to watch live because you didn't want to miss it. Now it's a product that you couldn't possibly watch it all live unless you were paid to do it or you had absolutely nothing else in your life. Uh, cause you're asking, if you're, if you're a person who's still watching UFC prelims for an event like this and you're not getting paid for it, God bless you. Because this was like <laughs> six and a half hours long by the time they got done with it. I don't know. You must, you must not be married. You must not have a family. You must not have any hobbies. I question whether you even get other channels on your TV. <laughs> That's right, because you're just sitting there staring at Fox Sports 1 or, or Fight Pass, I guess, for the, for the first few fights. Uh, this feels to me – like, I don't want to say that the UFC is being disrespectful for its audience to its audience or taking its audience for granted, even though it's kind of what it feels like at times. But what it does feel like to me is a situation where no one is making decisions based on what will produce the best product, Right. Fox is making decisions based around the fact that, hey, man, we get all of this live sports programming, which is awesome to sell advertising uh, on for a comparatively cheap price, uh, you know, compared to what we would pay for, like, the NBA or something like that. Uh, so they're all for throwing all this up on the television, especially on Fox Sports 1, where the, the ratings that they're getting are negligible all across the board anyway. And for the UFC, well, they're involved in this... Uh, contract with Fox where they have to put on a certain amount of programming and they have 500 damn fighters on the roster. So you better put on a fight card with 15 fights on it, or you're just going to have, you know, a hundred guys at the end of the year that you didn't get fights for. Uh, so I feel like everyone's kind of looking after the bottom line and not thinking about the consumer experience. Yeah. I think if you're going to do a Fox sports one fight night event, the main card should be four fights, four fights, four fights in two hours. Right? Yes. Yeah. That, that would be about perfect. Yeah. And don't, don't mess around throwing it back to the studio if we ain't got time for that. Let's move on with things. Let's get this, let's get this going. Let's get it over with and look to the way other pro sports do it. Like you sit down to watch a hockey game on TV, you're in it for a little over two hours. You sit down to watch an NFL football game, you think about three hours. If you can't keep somewhere on a par with that, then I don't know how you expect to, to maintain a steady viewership unless you just go in there assuming like the people who like fights are, as Chad Dundas might say, shit eating wild men for this stuff. And will just watch absolutely anything for as long as you want to put it on TV. And I just don't know if there are that many people like that out there. It feels like we've actually like gone beyond that point. Like I would expect even the shit eating wild man would have to like attend dinner at his mom's house on some <laughs> Saturday and wouldn't be able to watch six and a half hours of fights. Uh, okay, next question this week comes from Oscar Arneson. He writes, do you think Henry Cejudo could, quote-unquote, Holly Holm, Demetrius Johnson? DJ is much better rounded than Rousey. Uh, is it 
it is that kind of matchup, the new Phenom versus dominant champ. So I wonder, uh, so yeah, uh, shout out by the way to our Brazilian fans who hit me up this week to let me know how to say juicy a formiga. Yeah. So I believe I said formiga last week. Unforgivable. And that ain't going to fly. No. With, uh, with tough fans from, or CME fans from Brazil. Yeah. They want, they, they we are here to help. <laughs> Man, they want to make sure we get all this stuff. And God right. knows we need it. So, Ben, uh, Henry Cejudo gets a, a win over Formiga this past weekend, even though it was a split decision, kind of a weird split decision. I thought Henry Cejudo won it fairly obviously. Yeah. Um, he's won four in a row now in the UFC. He's 10 and 0 overall in his MMA career. We all know about his wrestling credentials. Uh, he is, uh, 28 years old. He appears to be well on his way to being a well-rounded mixed martial arts fighter the you know he, the the strides that he's made on his feet putting together a striking game really evident in this in this fight last weekend um he's a talented guy he has the kind of skill set that you think conceivably could cause some problems for mighty mouse uh the champion demetrius johnson but when i watch henry cejudo fight i'm just i just don't really see it he seems you know he's 125 pounds and i'm sure compared to me fast as shit but like he just seems a little plodding to me in his offense to go out there with a guy with the physical skills of mighty mouse and and get a victory and maybe he could just take him down at will and could end up winning a decision but i don't know man i just think that there would be such a tremendous speed advantage still for demetrius johnson that i have a hard time seeing Sahudo take take it away from him first of all you're selling yourself short you think i'm fat the fast for my size you're pretty in in short bursts with a lot of very, rest time very in between. short bursts. You're not bad. Yeah. You're not bad. You know, I feel like with Henry Cejudo, and maybe here's where we get into a pretty decent comparison with Holly Holm, I feel like we're still waiting to see him become the guy that it seemed like, okay, give this dude four more fights and he'll be a monster. And now it's four more fights later, and I feel like we're still waiting for that monster to show up. And right now we're basing a lot on potential, on what he's done before, what he's done in wrestling, and the idea that... Hey, when this guy gets enough experience and enough training and puts it all together, man, he'll really be something special. And you're right. I don't think we're seeing it yet. I mean, he's beating people, and there's really no question that he's beating these people. I think the the fight with uh, Chico Camus was maybe closer than this one. So uh, you're right that they should all read unanimous decision, and I guess that doesn't really matter as long as you actually saw the damn fight and sat there for six hours. But I think that maybe, maybe here's where you say, I don't know if you heard the uh, claims that Holly Holm was holding back. I did. I was actually just going to ask you about that after we discussed this since you, you brought it up. Maybe your boy Henry Cejudo is holding a little something back. Holding a little something back just so that DJ can't get a full scouting operation going on him just yet. The the mad scientist Matt Hume over there can't see everything that your boy Cejudo has to throw at him. Uh, I guess I would like to believe that because it would make the world more interesting. But as you said, right now... I feel like, yeah, sure, give him Demetrius Johnson next because what the hell else are you going to do in that division? You might as well. Uh, and I feel like we've waited long enough to see Henry Cejudo and, and what he's going to become. Well, yeah, and here's the thing about Cejudo, too, is that after he beats Formiga, uh, he is number three at this point on the UFC official flyweight rankings as of this Monday afternoon. And the two guys in front of him are John Dodson, who recently decamped for bantamweight, and Joseph Benavidez, who, as we all know, has had multiple shots at the champion uh, already. So really, like, if you're, if you're gonna do things strictly according to rankings, which we all know they don't do, but the flyweight division is shallow anyway, like, Sahudo probably doesn't have that much more time 
to develop. Like he might turn out to be Demetrius Johnson's next fight. So the product that we see out there against Formiga is the one that we have to assume is going to get in there with Demetrius Johnson. Uh, and unless he was going Mike Winklejohn, Greg Jackson style and holding back during his first several appearances, uh, I don't really see it. Yeah. Segway. Do you buy that? Do you think that Holly Holm was purposefully sandbagging her first two fights in the UFC? Because when I, when I initially heard it, I thought, Ain't no way. Even though Holly Holm did look somewhat lackluster in those first two fights, you would have to have some enormous balls. You would. To go Especially into in this sport. Your first two fights in the UFC at the top level and be like, you know what? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go 85% here. Just so when I event, just cause I'm so confident that I will eventually will get in there with the champion, then I will go 100%. Well, and she won her first fight, uh, that one against Raquel Pennington at UFC 184. She won it by split decision. Right. Like that one you, easily could have gone against it, you. And then you wished you, you would have been sitting there going, maybe it was a terrible idea to hold yeah, back. You, whoops. Uh, but you know, if there's, if there's people who that I wouldn't put it past them doing that, it's, it's Winkle John and Jackson. I guess I would like to know exactly what we mean when we say holding back. Yeah, someone might have to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. Next question from Brady Carlson this week. He writes, can we talk about how fucking awesome Diego Sanchez is? This question comes before his fight, and I'm pumped. His excitement and intensity is a real treat. He even had time to defend Albuquerque and come up with a sweet-ass new nickname for Holly, the humbler home. Guys, will you miss Diego Sanchez when he's gone? Ben, uh, Diego Sanchez, if we can fast-forward... Uh, through the future, lost his featherweight debut, debut against Ricardo Lamas this weekend at the this long-ass UFC Fight Night event, uh, one of the few unanimous decisions on the main card, 30-27, across the board. But in answer to Brady uh, Carlson's question, I am going to miss Diego Sanchez when he's gone, not yeah. only because uh, of his exciting fighting style, but also because he's one of the few guys, when you interview him, who you feel like um, could would be doing himself a service if he said less. Yeah. And that uh, he seems, even though it's, you know, it's hard to say this about anybody. We don't really know these people, uh, but he seems like a really good hearted, genuine dude. And that's the, the impression that you get when you talk to him. And like Mark Coleman, he's one of those dudes where it's like, after he does the interview, I often wonder if he goes back and is like, I should not have said that thing that I said. Uh, I did a story, a feature story about him a couple of years ago where I also interviewed his wife, Bernadette Sanchez, uh, who, uh, they went to high school together and she was the manager on his high school wrestling team. Now they're married. Uh, and, and she is a perfectly normal and wonderful person who holds down a job with the government there in, in Albuquerque. Uh, and I was just struck by both of them just thinking like, you would not go into a story about a guy like Diego Sanchez thinking that these were the two people you were going to interview. Uh, and I hope everything turns out well for him was my, the feeling that I personally had coming away from it. Uh, and that maybe is one of the things that makes us a little nervous about Diego Sanchez. Yeah, I agree. Cause I, I've also, every experience I've ever had with Diego Sanchez, there's, he gives you no reason not to like him and not to root for him. And he's one of those people where in some ways you wish you could emulate him in your life. Like the relentless positivity, uh, even when things are going poorly. Uh, and like, uh, somebody pointed out to me, I think on Twitter that that thing BJ Penn said about him before he fought him was that he's a guy who's gotten where he has, uh, beyond where his ability should have taken him basically through sheer will, which I think is always impressive. But it's also the kind of thing that is potentially 
long-term harmful to you in this sport because those guys who get there through sheer will are going to keep trying to get there through through sheer will well past the point when they should. And to be honest, I thought he looked better in this fight than I expected him to. I thought that we might be looking at a kind of a depressing night, especially with that big cut down the featherweight. That did not seem to be easy for him. He saw his face just look entirely different from starving himself to get down there. Uh, but then he went out there and definitely took some shots against Ricardo Lamas, but proved that he could still take those shots. Uh, but that's, I guess, again, one of the things that just makes me worry more because it seems like he's not going to voluntarily decide to stop doing this anytime soon. Yeah, and certainly not an easy featherweight debut to go out there against a, a top five UFC featherweight in Ricardo Lamas. It seemed like Diego Sanchez wanted to fight a smarter fight this time that he didn't want to go out there. Uh, and get into another one of these huge brawls that he had kind of become famous for in the last few years. Uh, but in the end, I think the thing that Ricardo Lamas proved is that a skilled technical fighter who, who like, uh, takes pains to have a measured and smart fight will beat Diego Sanchez at this point in his career. And that's another thing that makes you wonder, like, how long he he's viable. Well, maybe he initially wanted to fight that smart fight, but uh once he started to get his leg kicked all hell, that was when he kind of put his back on the fence and said, "Come on in here and brawl with me." And it was honestly the best chance he had. He he hurt Lamas at least once doing that. Kind of the same way he hurt Gilbert Melendez. So he still has that ability and that's probably increasingly the the part of his game that he's going to rely on. But once people have have seen that and they've seen it out there and they know what to do against you, uh, I think he's at that dangerous level where he's enough of a name and he's making enough money that the UFC is not going to give him too many easy nights at featherweight. And also, what do you think happens if the UFC decides Diego Sanchez's services are no longer required here? Man, he is knocking on Bellator's door tomorrow. Yeah, probably so. Uh, next question this week from David Lauderette or Lauderay. So, John Jones is jacked, he writes, and everyone is now even more terrified. What are the chances he's actually a worse fighter with this added muscle? He seems to have had the perfect balance between strength and stamina before. I'm thinking this new muscle might not do him any favors in rounds three through five. Side note, I recently learned discourse is a real word. Before, I just thought people were being clever by fucking up the word discuss. Discourse. Uh, <laughs> so we're teaching people stuff. That's right. We're here to set an example. Lead by example. Yeah, or something like that. Some, it's, I'm not sure it's going great, but <laughs> we're up. That's what we're up to. Uh, so yeah, the internet was a buzz this past weekend, Ben, about past week about uh, John Jones's Instagram account, a picture of him looking pretty shredded, standing next to another shirtless dude at his strength and conditioning program session, uh, and then a, a Instagram video of him what deadlifting like 600 pounds. Um, so it seems like he's hit the weight room during his off time when he was off on his, uh, what turned out to be four or five or six month indefinite suspension from the UFC. Uh, but I think David Lauderette makes a, a valid point here because we we're all kind of jumping to the conclusion, or at least a lot of people on social media that Jones comes back bigger, badder than ever. And, and that, you know, we should be getting our eulogies for Daniel Cormier ready. But this is a sport where, as Joe Rogan will tell you time and time again, having that added muscle and added bulk doesn't necessarily make you a better fighter. That's true. I think we should wait to see what he looks like oh, come on. In fight, after a fight camp and at weigh-ins and like when he's actually getting ready to fight, what kind of body type he'll go with. Honestly, I'm encouraged that he used all this time off to jump in the weight room instead of pursue other interests. Not go to smoke? 
down down <laughs> Albuquerque or or not go to Snake. I'm just trying to think of club club names. Rumors. Did you see John Jones hanging out at Rumors the other night? Man, they won't even let me into Rumors. Yeah, I heard you got 86th from Rumors. Yeah. Too bad. Frank Muir used to be the bouncer down there. Who knew you had to have a dinner jacket? Uh, I think that the 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 thing I took away from that is like, hey, look, John Jones has taken his disappointments and personal uh, failures and has maybe done exactly what we were kind of hoping he would do, which is get mad in a way, look to channel his energy in other directions, and he did it in the weight room and got super jacked, and then he'll get ready to go and fight Daniel Cormier, and if he puts that same energy into preparing for that fight, then he should be, yes, even more terrifying. I'm not at this point too... Especially, if, if this is the thing we're the most concerned about, is that the dude is getting too huge and muscular, um, then we don't have that much to worry about with John Jones. Yeah, I'm going to stick to my original forecast that he will return better than ever and, and smoke everyone in the light heavyweight division just because I think that's what kind of dude he is. But you, it's possible you make a valid point that we should wait for the fight to happen before we I, talk about. As a man who hosts a weekly MMA podcast, I, I don't, I'm not going to throw my support behind that idea that we should wait to see what happens before we hashtag just say stuff. But I, I would like to see once there's enough of a sample size out there to examine it, the link between how soon after you post a picture on social media of you looking super jacked, how quickly USADA shows up for a random test after that. Well, because it's the joke now, right? Like everybody, right. like there was a comment the on there. The first comment, right? <laughs> on his Instagram picture was some guy writing WADA and then a bunch of phone emojis. <laughs> Which is, you know, A-plus commenting right. work by that gentleman. But I do wonder, they've got to be paying attention to that stuff and even if they are not looking at it and being like, okay, here's somebody we might want to check out and look deeper at, the pressure is going to be put on them by other people who are looking at it and being like, hey, how the hell did this guy suddenly get really jacked? Don't you guys want to go check that out? And when they have that list online where you can see who's been tested and how many times, people are going to be watching that and being like, hey, what the hell? Why don't you leave Ronda Rousey alone and go over there and see what John Jones is up to? He seems to have gained about 25 pounds of muscle when you weren't looking. All Not right. that I'm saying that I think John Jones is on anything, but I'd like to. I'd really love to see how headline. those two things correlate. Tomorrow's headlines today. <laughs> uh, we we got time for one more from David Taylor. He writes: Since Holly Holm stole Ronda's soul, she has been doing the usual mainstream outlet media tours, and I've seen lots of MMA message boards getting pumped up about the increased exposure on these TV spots. The setup is generally the same: old white dude accompanied by incongruous hot blondes who will remark at how it must hurt to get punched in the face, cut to an ad break, followed by a demonstration of a lazy hip toss on, that's struck through, and it says, head kick in a makeshift cage. My question is, who is this form of promotion attracting to the sport? We as fans like to moan about mainstream perceptions of MMA, yet whenever our stars get enough traction uh, to cross over, the sport gets covered in the same carnival pro wrestling tone, which I think only serves to restrict its growth. Well, props to David Taylor. He's got that, that formula down. For the yeah, he knows what how these post-fight media appearances go or pre-fight media appearances. That's right. It seemed like the UFC kind of slid Holly Holm into all of its planned Ronda Rousey post-fight media obligations, uh, which I think is great for Holly Holm. I think that she's kind of coming off as the anti-Ronda, uh, that she's just out here being everybody's pal, and I think that's great for her. Uh, it kind of lets you know what kind of champion she's going to be as as long as she uh, holds that belt. Uh, but I think David Taylor makes uh, a valid point. And it's something that I think I realized about mainstream coverage a long time ago. 
Uh, I remember years and years ago now I was watching an episode of uh, Pardon the Interruption with Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon on ESPN, and they were talking about the potential of uh, Fedor Emelianenko and Randy Couture fighting each other. This was, I think, when Couture was doing uh, his contract holdout with the UFC. He wanted to go elsewhere. We're thinking 2007, maybe? It's possible, yeah. Okay. Uh, and and they were talking about that, which is like a weird thing for them to kind of be talking about, but it had kind of made some mainstream impact. And I remember Mike Wilbon just kind of screeching into the camera that he didn't want to talk about Fedor Emelianenko versus Randy Couture. What he wanted to talk about was either of those guys fighting Rampage Jackson. Like, that's what he wanted to talk about. And I just, and I thought, these guys have no fucking idea what they're talking about. And that's when it dawned on me, this is what we're going to get from mainstream coverage is a bunch of people who have no fucking idea what they're talking about. And then, even more frightening, I started to wonder, I wonder how much that is happening. And I just don't know it because the people I'm watching on television are telling me about NASCAR or something. And I, and I don't know what they, that they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I think it is probably more prevalent with a really niche sport like MMA where it goes on all year round, but the people who the mainstream uh, outlets care about are only fighting a couple times, maybe three times a year. And so they kind of drift back into it, only knowing that you're not going to be covering this for the next three or four months. So you don't probably bother to learn all that much about it and don't feel like you need to because there's only a couple of people anybody cares to hear about. Uh, I do think also, though, that uh, I wonder what it's going to be like. I think the test for how this Holly Holm mainstream media attention goes is going to be if, say, she fights a rematch against Ronda Rousey or if she doesn't, if Ronda Rousey takes a little more time than we're thinking and Holly Holm has to defend a belt against somebody else, the first time she fights somebody who is not Ronda Rousey uh, and if she has the belt when she does it, then I want to see what the attention is like then we'll know how much of it is going to carry over to her. Because it does feel right now like she doesn't have to do a whole lot to get that attention. She's the person who knocked out Ronda Rousey. That's enough right now. That's a that's a big thing to have. And if she's not super outspoken and doesn't have the way with a, a sound bite that Ronda Rousey does, that's fine. That's like uh, the, the analogy I made in my mailbag last week was when George W. Bush ran the first time and basically tried to uh, not so subtly say, I'll bring the, I'll be the guy who brings, uh, family values back to the White House. Basically, I will not be getting blown by interns. Isn't that great? Like, by contrast, I seem, I seem like somebody, uh, new and, and fresh. And I think that's what Holly Holm has going for her. She's not quite as charismatic as Ronda Rousey, but also nicer, I guess, in a way, a little bit more, uh, just like, down home girl next door kind of thing. And I think it works in contrast because people were so used to having Rousey as the dominant reigning force there. I wonder how it's going to play six to nine months from now. Yeah. And some of that might come down to how the UFC promotes her and whether or not it does the stuff for Holly Holm that it previously did for Ronda, uh, you know, producing the million dollar TV ads and whatnot, um, making sure she gets on all the right talk shows uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I suspect they're probably not going to let her fight anybody till Ronda's ready. Uh, but if that turns out to be a really long time, then, then maybe we would get to see, uh, how she fares against somebody else in the pay-per-view arena. Uh, it sounded like this one where she beat Ronda, uh, fared totally awesomely on yes. pay-per-view. So, you know, a lot of people tuned in to watch her win by knockout. We'll have to see how many of those people 
come back for more. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you'd like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's funny. It's short. You'll like it. If you don't like it, it's easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. And it's not as though I had low expectations for a fight between Neil Magny and Kelvin Gastelum uh, because they're both good young fighters and guys who have been on the rise. Maybe it was just the fact that there wasn't a ton of star power involved in this fight. Uh, but I was surprised that these two guys came out there and had a completely pleasing mixed martial arts fight uh, that uh, entailed some, you know, engaging grappling sessions and some good striking and some swings of momentum and kind of everything that you want, I guess, out of a televised main event fight. Uh, maybe one where Kelvin Gasolum wishes he would have gone back to watch Damian Maya's jujitsu videos, uh, where he showed you how to beat, uh, Neil Magny. Well, step one is be really awesome at jujitsu. I guess so. Yeah. George St. Pierre style. You know, that's one of the things that I came away from this fight thinking was, when I watched Neil Magny and his pressure grappling style and him really kind of putting Gaslam on his heels there on the first few rounds and then using it to save his ass a lot of uh, in a lot of ways when he got rocked uh, there later in the fight was this really makes me appreciate how awesome Demian Maya must be because Demian Maya made Neil Magny look like he didn't even belong in there with him as soon as the fight hit the mat and then Neil Magny goes out there against you know, a quality welterweight, uh, sometimes middleweight, in Kelvin Gastelum, and kind of trucks him a little bit on the ground. And it just makes you think, it's not, in the case of guys like Demian Maia, or also I'd include Jacare Souza on that list, it's not like them being just a little bit better than some of these other guys on the ground. It's them being a world away, and the only chance is to just not get there with them. Um, which, if I'm, if I'm Demian Maia, assuming he made it, all the way to this main event, I assume he DVR'd it. Oh, Tammy and Maya, he was asleep four hours before this thing came on, man. That guy's as old as me. I think he, I think maybe he watched that one, cracked open a soda pop, nodded his head, and said, "Yeah, this one makes old Uncle Demian look pretty good." Would you go as far, Ben, as to say there's levels to this shit? There is. There is straight up levels to All this. All right. Well, shit. before we talk a little bit about what this win means for Neil Magny, because I suspect it's kind of an important one for him. Uh, let's talk about Kelvin Gastelum, because much of the intrigue leading up to this fight, as you said last week on the show, was going to be about whether Gastelum could make the welterweight limit after he had some trouble earlier this year, the fight against Tyron Woodley at UFC 183. He went way over, ended up weighing in at 180 pounds to have a catch weight against Woodley, um, forcibly moved up to middleweight in his next appearance at UFC 188, uh, where he came out and looked impressive in, in scoring a TKO stoppage uh, against 
against Nate Marquardt, where I believe Marquardt's corner had to throw in the towel, right? Or, or yeah. tell him no moss. Yeah, they stopped it from uh, rounds. So the, we were we thought we were going to get some intrigue out of how Gasolin would look coming down to 170. As it turns out, I don't think that's really the storyline heading out of this thing because Gasolin came out, uh, looked good, looked like he had a decent gas tank, but still kind of got beat by Neil Magny. Uh, so I don't know. What do you think this means for Calvin Gasolin? Do we see him go back up to middleweight or does he stick around at 170 or was the weight cut thing just not even a, a factor here? Didn't seem to be a huge factor to me here. It seemed like he made it all right, which also I think then makes people look back and go, so did you just fail to make it before because you didn't know anything about nutrition or you weren't uh, disciplined in your training camp? Because seems like he can make it and he can look okay and he can perform all right. Uh, I think the I think what we saw here was youth and inexperience kind of showing for Kelvin Gastelum a little bit. That, I mean, he's only 24. I think his uh, his fight IQ may have hurt him a little bit in this one because not only did he have a lot of difficulty in those first two and three rounds turning the tables and getting off of the defensive against Neil Magny. He seemed just kind of overwhelmed by the pressure for a little while. But then once he did have him hurt, he kept finding himself sucked back into Magny's grappling game instead of attacking him when he had him vulnerable uh, and keeping on him with the strikes, which is how we hurt him in the first place. I think that, you know, that's not anything you can't overcome as a fighter. I think that you can get smarter with more experience uh, and you can get a little better about dealing with those situations. I don't think it's time to be like, well, Kelvin Gaslam was a flash in the pan. Let's move on. Uh, but it is the kind of thing that tells you he still has some work to do. Anybody who's thinking that we were going to be looking at a, a meteoric rise here should check themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's... Before they wreck themselves. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you added that on there. Or oh. else I'd, I'm not sure we would have understood the consequences, the potential oh. consequences of Kelvin Gastelum not checking himself. I'd hate to see you wreck yourself and then feel like you weren't warned. It is a situation with Kelvin Gastelum, though. Like you said, he's only 24 years old. He certainly has a lot of time to put it back together. Uh, but, you know, coming out of last year when he was 10-0 and and he was coming off his win over Jake Ellenberger, he'd beat Rick Story, he'd beat Uriah Hall uh, to win one of the ubiquitous seasons of the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, we definitely thought that he was a, a fast comer here at... Uh, um, 170 pounds or 185 pounds, wherever he wanted to be. Uh, now he's one and two and his, his win there in the middle of that this year, uh, over Nate Marquardt, like we said, a, a Nate Marquardt that we all, uh, already assumed was on his way out and a guy who didn't seem to really have it the way he had it a few years ago. Um, so not a good 2015 all the way around for Kelvin Gastelum. He will have some work to do next year to put, put some of that hype back together. Yeah. But I, I, again, don't feel like the, the one and two sounds way worse on paper than I think it actually was. The the one against Tyron Woodley, he had that disastrous weight cut, looked like he just wanted to die. And then he went out there with Woodley and went the distance, which I thought was kind of surprising, even though he seemed like he probably felt awful. Then he, he beat the brakes off of Mark Hart, then he comes up there and almost beats Neil Magny, had, had him hurt, had some chances there, uh, and it didn't quite pan out for him. But... Still a hell of a fight. I don't know. I, I don't feel like this is the point when uh, things turn around and Kelvin Gastelum takes a nosedive. I feel like maybe this is one of those years where you might look back on it and think how rough it was, how many hard lessons you learned, but we're glad you went through it ultimately. Uh, speaking of one and two, let's talk about Neil Magny. He started his UFC career one and two uh, back in 2013, but then had that kind of... Uh, Wonderful streak in 2014, 2015, the beginning of this year when he won seven fights in a row. He'd had a lot, he'd built up a lot of hype. 
and then he goes out and, like we said, coughed one up against Damian Maia at UFC 190. Uh, because he is on the Cowboy Cerrone schedule of fighting, he's already put two wins between himself and that and that loss. Both of them split decisions, but over Eric Silva and Kelvin Gastelum, two guys fairly highly regarded in this weight class. Uh, we should also point out he fought five times this year and five times last year. So 10 fights in yeah. two years for Neil Magny, uh, which, as Brian Stan said during the broadcast, is awesome and everything. But it seems like his coaches wish that at some point he would take a fight that he has more than two weeks notice to prepare for. Uh, but so far, it's working out pretty well for Calvin or for Neil Magny. Excuse me. Uh, this, was this his signature win? Because I think we've been waiting for a while for him to get one. Because, you know, the guys that he had beat during that seven fight win streak, uh, besides the Dirty Bird. Tim Means. I know you love you some Dirty Bird. Are not necessarily guys whose names are going to stick in your mind. Now he's got that win over Eric Silva and this one over Kelvin Gastelum. Are we any closer uh, to declaring Neil Magny uh, a guy you ought to know at welterweight? Or or does the split decision nature of these last two wins and that loss of Damian Maia still hold him back? You know, I think that he has earned the right to be thought of as somebody you should know at welterweight. Especially, like you said, he won five fights in 2014. And anybody who can lose a fight uh, in one calendar year and still win four other fights in that same calendar year, man, that guy is somebody to be taken seriously. And I hope that uh, he's he's saving some of that money that he's making and rocketing right up the Reebok pay scale, uh, I would add. But... I think that this probably is the the biggest of those wins. I think that, especially if we look back in two years' time, I suspect that a win over Kelvin Gastelum will seem like it means more then than a win over Eric Silva. I mean, who knows? Two years is a long time in MMA, and I'm totally prepared for. You're talking about 20 more fights for Neil Magny. <laughs> yes, he's ten. Or he's nine and one right now over the last two years. You, but I don't think that uh, he's taken a ton of tam- ton of damage in these fights. I think this one. He, he got dropped, he got hurt a little bit, but he bounced back well from it. I think what we're seeing is maybe he's able to put some of that experience to good use. And I, I don't know, just because you lose to Demian Maia when he absolutely schooled you on the ground. Demian Maia schooled a lot of people on the ground, yeah, a lot of good fighters on the ground. That's yeah, especially now that he remembered that he wasn't a boxer after all, that this was his specialty and has gotten back to, to taking people there. I wouldn't be too ashamed of that, uh, considering Neil Magny's experience level and, and overall game. I, I think that, uh, who knows, in a couple years, if maybe he, uh, I think if you start doing this, what he's been doing, you're right, like you're you're going to run into some roadblocks here. There, If you fight that many times and you take short notice fights like that, it's not necessarily the best long-term career planning. If he can kind of slow down and pick his spots a little more from now on, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him come up the rankings. And this was a fight for me where I was really impressed with his skills. He fought a smart fight. Uh, he definitely uh, got the better of Kelvin Gaslam for the majority of the fight, uh, both on the ground and on the feet. And this was a one that, to me, reinforced how big and long Neil Magny is at this weight class because he's out there fighting a dude who has trouble making the weight, has trouble getting down to, to 170, and Magny just kind of dwarfs him, just so much taller and longer than, than Kelvin Gaslam that you know, if he's a guy that continues to improve, I think is a guy that could make noise in this division. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to uh, round number two this week. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I don't know if you remember how Uriah Hall got himself in a little bit of hot water when writing on Instagram to defend his buddy, uh, Ronda Rousey. Uh, and he complained about the uh, the treatment 
that Rousey received at the hands of some fans, writing, Some of you guys are no different from a terrorist. Shaking my fucking head. SMFH. Uh, which I know I don't have to tell you what that means. No, I'm savvy uh, yeah. to, the, to the internet. Maybe game. not the best time, considering what went on in Paris, to be comparing people who said mean stuff on the internet to actual terrorists who kill people and blow people up. Uh, but when Hall went to defend his remarks uh, in a conversation with MMA Junkie, uh, and he, first of all, his caveat is, I didn't say UFC fans were terrorists. I said fans are terrorists. Oh, so he was talking about Bellator fans. <laughs> Damn terrorists. Uh, then, quote, certain fans act like it. Think about it. What does a terrorist do? They fucking kill you. They take your life away. They take away certain things. What does a fan do? They kill your dreams. Kill motivation. Oh, yeah. No. Now it's a perfectly Wait, reasonable uh, comparison. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That doesn't even make any damn sense. No. No, it does not. Maybe that was the best thing to say there was, I got carried away. I saw my friend being hurt publicly. I came to her defense. Sorry for my choice of words. Not, I'm sorry, but I'm basically still right. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the final prelim fight on Fox Sports 1 this past weekend, the featured prelim, you might even say. Love a featured prelim. Uh, which included uh, bantamweight fighter Eric Perez. Uh, the UFC kind of screwed up here and put the picture of bantamweight fighter Alejandro Perez up on the screen before Eric Perez was going to fight. I'm sure nobody noticed. Well, they might not have noticed had Alejandro Perez not just <laughs> fought two fights earlier where he defeated Scott Jorgensen by uh, injury TKO. Uh, so that was a pretty noticeable screw up. And I guess if you're going down to do a fight in Monterrey, Mexico... The the impression that you want to send is not we can't we can't tell these guys apart, even though one of them has an enormous chest tattoo and the <laughs> other one does not. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Chest all tattoo. All right. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, this weekend, early, early in the morning, from the Olympic Gymnastics Arena in Seoul, South Korea, Bendo Benson Henderson is going to go in there against Jorge, I'm going to let you say it, Gamebred, Masvidal. And the more I think about this one, the more it's actually a pretty intriguing welterweight fight, not the least of which because it could really help determine where Benson Henderson's career goes from here. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, yeah, it's been kind of a the world's worst kept secret, I guess you could say, that that contract negotiations between Benson Henderson and the UFC uh, either hadn't gone well or that Ben Henderson had just sort of uh, let it be known that he was going to test his worth on the open market, as I personally believe almost all fighters should do at this point now that there is 
a legitimate competing organization out there, several legitimate competing organizations out there to to uh, either match or exceed the UFC's offer. Uh, so in that regard, this is kind of a tough one to get a bead on uh, f- for Benson Henderson, because even if he loses it to Jorge Masvidal, which uh, would drop his recent record down to uh, just one in three in his last four fights. He's obviously got losses to the current lightweight champ, Rafael Dos Anjos and Donald Cerrone at lightweight, then moved up and beat Brandon Thatch at welterweight. So if he drops this one to uh, Masvidal, uh, you know, he, he wouldn't exit the company if that's what happens with the greatest uh, record in the world. But at the same time, you got to believe almost every other company out there would want to get them a piece of Bendo. Especially right now. I think that... Back when he was the lightweight champion, public opinion was kind of against him. It was hard for fans to really get behind him. Uh, he seemed to a lot of people overly careful, not a whole lot of fun to watch. They maybe thought that he was winning decisions uh, to either get or keep the belt that he didn't necessarily deserve. And yet now in his don't give a fuck years that he has entered into where he's like, hey, I'll fight at welterweight, lightweight, wherever you want me to step in and save this card this weekend. No, all right, that's up to you. I think that that version of Benson Henderson is a lot easier for people to get into and really ups his market value right about now. So if you're going to test your worth on the open market if as ben, Benson Henderson, now is a good time to do it. I was a little bit surprised, though, when I looked at the betting odds on this one. Have you looked at them? No, I have not. I was not planning on placing a wager on this one. You got to sit this one out? Yeah. Let the heat die down? Yeah, let the heat die down, stack my bank, get ready to dive back in for the next all fight. I I understand. Uh, I thought it would be pretty close, and instead, uh, Benson bought a two and a half to one favorite. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Going off minus 240, minus 250 uh, right about now. I guess people are really uh, really feeling them some Benson Henderson at welterweight because your boy Gamebred, (coughs) Gamebred, Gamebred, He's no joke. No, he's, he's not. a tough dude. In fact, I would say Masvidal is a guy who coming out of Strike Force, you know, during after the UFC acquired that company back 2011-2012, maybe not a guy that would have been on the tip of anyone's tongue like, "Oh, well this means the UFC gets Jorge Masvidal. How exciting is that?" <laughs> yeah. Then he, there he, were other concerns, okay? People had other stuff on Yeah, we had other stuff to sort out, but he comes into the UFC and has actually been pretty impressive in going 6 and 2. Uh, so far, obviously the losses against Al Iaquinta and uh, Rustam Habalov, but he's got some good wins. One, by the way, over the Dirty Bird, Tim Means. Well, you know, the more you list all the people who have beat the <laughs> Dirty Bird, the more your your fandom in the Dirty Bird becomes questionable. He's got wins over the Dirty Bird. He's got a win over Michael Chiesa. He just got a win over Cesar Ferrara in his last fight uh, in July. So, you know, like it or not, Masvidal is a guy who's been, I guess, more successful than maybe we thought he was going to be. And it seems to be one of those guys that's just kind of fun to watch. Like, he's he's not a guy that you would ever complain about having to watch one of his fights, which at this point in the, the, the way that the UFC does business, the extent of the product that it has to offer, dudes like Jorge Masvidal have a niche. For sure, like you, you know, a guy who can step up and and main event a a, a show, albeit a a fight pass show against Benson Henderson, and and go out there and put on a good performance, win or lose. So, um, this is kind of a big one for him. I think it would be good, great for him, obviously, to win against Benson Henderson would definitely uh, raise his stock even more than what we've seen from him. Uh, and then for Benson Henderson, you always want to win, especially if you're going to exit the organization. Uh, you wanted to make it seem like you got the upper hand. 
right? And not yeah. that you went out one and three. That's right. You know, uh, want to hear a cool Jorge Masvidal story that's also kind of gross? Absolutely. Of course I want to hear a I believe gross and awesome Jorge Masvidal story. Right after, he, right after coming over from Strikeforce, his first fight in the UFC, uh, and it was in San Jose, and it was that UFC on Fox where uh, – Benson Henderson defended his title against Gilbert Melendez, and he fought on the undercard of that one. I believe that was the one against the Dirty Bird, Tim Means. Tim Means, the Dirty Bird. And I, I he got his uh, the side of his head split open uh, pretty good by an elbow or something at some point and had not had it stitched up or anything and walked backstage to do the scrum interview. And from where I was standing, I could see... Like, I was looking directly at the cut on the side of his head, like in his in his scalp, basically. And it was really deep and still bleeding as he talked. And, you know, as he was, like, looking around the room, you could see it kind of opening and closing. And it became a thing where I couldn't look away and yet also felt increasingly nauseous. Like, looking into the man's head uh, from, uh, like, a foot away. And uh, I've never forgotten that. Also, especially because I was clearly way more bothered by it than Jorge Masvidal was. I don't, yeah, I don't have a hard time buying that. Uh, squeamish, <laughs> squeamish as you are. I went backstage at a sport fight once in, in Portland, Oregon. I had a press pass. God knows why. Uh, <laughs> and it would, but it was like one of those landmark experiences for me where I went backstage and saw just how fucked up everyone who fought that night was, including the winners. And like how they're all kind of, this is like an independent MMA show, obviously. So they're all kind of trying to get their own rides to the hospital and whatnot. Uh, and that was, that was one of the, you know, one of the seminal moments for me where I realized, Oh, wow. This is hard on your body. Yeah. All of these guys are super fucked up. Yeah. You know, and I think that is easy for fans to forget just generally because yeah. like we said before, where, Guy gets just basically shut down, power off, knockout, crumbles to the floor, and the camera follows the other dude who jumps on top of the cage and celebrates. Right. We don't really stick around to see exactly how everybody's doing the morning after. Well, it was one of those things, like I saw some reports out this week. People were saying Ronda Rousey, devastated by the loss, was like crying in the fetal position in her locker room uh, after it was over, and people thought that was all funny and ha, ha, ha. And every time I see that, and I felt the same way when people made fun of Chris Lieben for crying at the, you know, first season of The Ultimate Fighter 10 years ago now. Uh, all these people cry when they lose. Every single goddamn one of them. You just don't see it or hear reports of it all the time. Uh, so yeah, both, both emotionally and physically daunting. You're telling sport. me, you told me Dan Henderson cries. Maybe not Dan Henderson. How about Fedor? No, I think we, we found out on last week's Master Tweet Theater, uh, that Dan Henderson like gets a frozen drink and goes to the beach, right? That's what he does. <laughs> no reason not to. Fedor only cries during the opera. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say about Benson Henderson, Jorge Masvidal? Masvidal, you could see him showing up in one of those dogfight backyard brawls, right? Yep. That seems like the kind of dude he is. So he, I'm not. He, he was in one of those. Uh... Oh, was he? Yeah. There, there you go. See, that must be why that's how I associate him with that mentality. And he, also why I'm not surprised that he was conducting interviews with while well, you could see his skull or whatever. Yeah. No, he was in one of those like kind of boat salvage yard kind of uh, atmosphere where it looked like maybe uh, like uh, one of those empty parks full of storage units, something like that. He was in one of those bare knuckle. Well, bad that's what got to make you feel better at least. 
If you're the guy who I assume Jorge Masvidal whipped your ass in a boat salvage yard when you showed up to fight for, you know, the guys who run Brazzers or whatever, like, that's got to up your strength of schedule later on down the road when you're able to, like, be at dinner one night and be like, yeah, that guy I lost to in the boat salvage yard is now 6-2 and two in the UFC. Yeah. So it turned out he was pretty good at fighting. That's like one of my friends who I played high school football with still wants to talk about how the coaches gave him hell in the film room one day. Uh, for getting just punked by a defensive lineman on another team. And then that dude still plays for the Dallas Cowboys. There you go. It always makes me wonder, like, people are always talking about, you know, well, I just thought I would train for a while and have one amateur fight and see how it goes. And I always wonder, like, what if the guy that you show up to fight in your amateur fight is John Jones? You just don't know it yet. Yeah. Like, during that period of John Jones's career where he was – having a fight every two weeks and beating somebody in 30 seconds. Like, how would you like to be one of those guys? I mean, again, I guess it gives you a good story to tell around the dinner table, but yeah. still. It's the story that begins with, how did I get this scar? Oh, I'll tell you. Let me tell you. Anyway, that's probably going to do it for round number two. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about what's going on with World Series of Fighting in round number three. That starts right now. Ben, this is kind of a tangled web, but we will do our best to keep it all straight as we go through it. An interesting story out uh, this week from John S. Nash over at Bloody Elbow, uh, basically concerning World Series of Fighting matchmaker Ali Abdelaziz, who's basically also sort of the face of the company as Ray Sifo uh, opts for more of a grandfatherly type uh, public persona. Basically, John Nash's story is about uh, World Series of Fighting being sued by something called World Series of Fighting Asia, who I assume are in cahoots, but not necessarily the same company. Man, are we going to get sued by CME Asia one I of these days? I hope that doesn't happen. Because, uh, man, we I do think not we're have in trouble. Money. I, my wife would have to do that pro bono. Yeah. Uh, basically, this lawsuit alleges that Abdelaziz, who is the matchmaker for World Series of Fighting and also a manager of mixed martial arts fighters... Uh, just to give you the, I guess, the umbrella overview of this of this whole thing. Basically, in a nutshell, the lawsuit alleges that Abdelaziz uh, books things in the World Series of Fighting to be advantageous to his own clients, and that uh, it specifically cites Jessica Aguilar as as a fighter who is not his client. Uh, who he did not, as it says, quote here from the legal document, Aziz did not arrange fights for her required under the World Series of Fighting contractual obligations. So uh, there are a number of uh, specific allegations against Abdelaziz, uh, whose name is also misspelled a ton in the legal document. It's Any- a tough one, in fairness. Yeah. Anyway, though, uh, basically we have claims of malfeasance against the World Series of Fighting matchmaker, who is also a fighter manager, uh, and, you know, allegations that he has basically violated Nevada State Athletic Commission rules in performing both of those duties at the same time. You know, the the series of articles does make the whole situation over there at World Series of Fighting seem like kind of a mess. But uh, the part that really interested me was the connection between a guy who's a manager of fighters and then also in a position to be a matchmaker for a promoter. And as is mentioned in uh, one of the stories, that it's 
it's not like they're the only ones doing that. You you see it kind of fr- like frequently in MMA, and it's the kind of thing that in boxing they really worked hard to try to prevent when you have the, the Muhammad Ali Act of trying to create uh, a real distinct separation between the fighter's manager and uh, the promoter. Uh, because you can see how it creates these obvious conflict of interest things. We talked about it before where, uh, like, the Alchemist Management Group owns Titan Fighting, and you'll see a situation where a guy will come in who is not represented by the Alchemist Management Group or, or anyone around there, fights one of the dudes who is on one of the Titan Fighting cards. You don't have to be a genius to think maybe they are not hoping for that other guy to beat their client. When they make those fights, you they have to have in the back of their minds, you know, how is this going to affect the future profitability of the guy who's paying me, the guy who I have some financial stake in. And the situation with Abdulaziz, uh, if everything laid out in this article is true, is he's essentially paying himself with World Series of Fighting's money that he that he's using them to, to pay the fighters, and then he gets a cut of that as the manager. That seems like the kind of obvious conflict of interest that just should not be allowed. Yeah, in a real generalized sense, I guess you don't have to dig too deep into things or be particularly be a genius to see how that could become a sticky situation. Uh, what exactly Ali Abdelaziz has or has not been up to, obviously we have no idea. It's just these allegations that are in this lawsuit. But as you uh, just brought up a second ago, it's an arrangement that uh, in mixed martial arts is so kind of commonplace that it seems more like an open secret to me and not even something that uh, you would even think about. I know that we have been to local Missoula, Montana MMA shows that were sponsored by the, you know, a guy who runs a various fight team here or there or, uh, in another town very close. And boy, to sit there and watch that, it sure looked like they brought in a bunch of guys that their guys would have an easy time beating up. Uh, not that that was necessarily done for financial reasons, but just sort of like, ah, let's get our guys some wins or or whatever. Well, the same thing when we've gone to sport fight events that put on by uh, Team Team Quest Quest there, and you, when the The, Hapkido team... You're talking about the Bear Clan? The Bear Clan I know we've talked about the Bear Clan on the show before, but god damn it, it's one of my favorite stories. (laughs) When all the Hapkido dudes came in, it did seem like they all got matched up against Team Quest dudes who just took them down and beat the holy hell out of them. Chris Wilson kicking, front kicking a guy in the face over and over over and over you could see the bear clan meet outside the ring after that was over and just kind of be like because that was their instructor chris yeah. wilson beat the shit out of the bear the instructor, instructor took the worst beating of yeah. all of them and you could see them meet outside the ring and be like well so you guys i'll see you guys on monday yeah. <laughs> really got to buckle down yeah uh but i think that it maybe it's become such a common thing in mixed martial arts that we don't pay enough attention to it because right. you see uh What's the one that Ed Soros has, the Resurrection? Oh, yeah, Resur- RFA, Resurrection yeah, the, Fighting the, the Alliance. the RFA uh, that, that Ed Soros runs. Uh, Monty Cox has mentioned here that he – I don't think he promotes or has promoted uh, any MMA events in a long time over there in Iowa, but used to do a whole bunch of them. Uh, and in a way, I I have like some sympathy for it because it seems like they were at least at one time and maybe even now in a different landscape – kind of trying to fill a gap that yeah. was missing that you yeah. needed some like intermediary kind of MMA event uh, to, to help guys who had fallen out of the UFC or were trying to get into the UFC, give them somewhere to fight so we can find out, you know, who's on their way up and who's on the way down. Uh, and there is kind of a niche market for that kind of thing, but it also creates a situation where you're doing exactly the kind of thing that 
other combat sports have learned is a terrible idea. And you can see why it's a terrible idea. Yeah, and I, I think I understand where you're coming from there. And that is, you know, you return to what has got to be one of the biggest problems uh, in combat sports, especially at the small town independent level. And that's that there's just not going to be people of means around to uh, be the engine that drives the whole thing. And you assume that guys who become managers of fighters are, are you know, guys that, that have some kind of education and maybe guys that have enough money that that's just something that they want to do on the side, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it kind of, I think, falls naturally that at least in the in the small town circuits, those guys also become the guys who put on the fights because they can afford the cage and the room rental. And, you know, they can they know a chiropractor who can act like he's a doctor for three hours at, at the at that ringside. So, yeah. And I think so. I think in a lot of cases it doesn't the situation doesn't arise from anyone trying to pull a fast one. It's just kind of like all these people get involved in the sport because they like it. And so they end up like unwittingly creating these conflicts of interest, even if they know better, just because they're trying to do something cool and put on a, an event. Well, Whether or not the, that covers Ali Abdelaziz, I, I do not know. And because there's no nobody really trying to stop them from doing that right. kind of thing. And you can see how it happens, too, because like we've talked about before, uh, mixed martial arts is one of those weird pro sports worlds where there's no barrier to entry to becoming a manager of anybody. If you can get some fighter to say, okay, yeah, you're my manager, there you go. You're right. in. Dana White came. He was the manager of, of uh, Chuck Liddell right. Right? and Tito Ortiz, and Tito Ortiz at one, Ortiz, at one yeah. point and rose from there yeah. into the spectacle we have before us today. And you, I've seen it before where uh, you know guys would be training at the gym and they start talking to some dude at the gym who's a lawyer or something and they and he says, okay, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll look over this contract for you uh, the same way. You know, lawyers, I think, are one of those uh, jobs. Uh, not unlike writers in that there are a lot of times being asked to do work for free uh, by friends and acquaintances who are like, hey, can you look over for this, look over this thing for me? And I think that that happens a lot in mixed martial arts. And then, you know, if you are somebody who has some experience on the business side of this industry and you have a little bit of money to spend, getting involved in, and promoting a mixed martial arts event is not too broad a, a leap from there and it's also one of those things where if they're not doing it who is doing it? it's always going to be somebody who's looking to make some money off of it uh and you know whether you get into it first as a manager and then become a promoter or as a small-time promoter who then ends up managing some people you can see how that happens i guess the question is should we have in place uh something for mma like in boxing that just absolutely creates a uh, firm separation between those and somebody actually looking out to try and enforce that yeah, I would say emphatically, yes, we ought to have that rule. Um, it probably also bears mentioning that, you know, there were some theories floating around at the time of the, of the Reebok deal that one of the ulterior motives of the powers that be by signing a, an exclusive apparel deal with Reebok was to try to weaken, uh, the influence of managers in mixed martial arts. And there's this notion, right or wrong, I don't know, that, uh, you know, the people in charge don't want actual professional managers to show up in the sport. I don't think you have to think too deeply into it to figure out why that would be, why they wouldn't want Scott Boris showing up. Uh, but that also sets the stage that the managers that you do get maybe are not the most professional sorts in the world. Yeah, but I think that's changed even from what it was five years ago. I think you see a lot more professional type men, especially for the, the fighters, the few fighters up there making big money. 
uh, I think you see that more and more that they, they do have real managers, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think though the, the thing that when we kind of look at what we should be doing, uh, what rules that we should have, enforcement always seems to me like the big thing, you know, like it's one thing to have these rules, but we need to have somebody who's actually going to enforce them. And like at one point in one of these articles where they, they bring up, what did the Nevada Athletic Commission say when you went to them and said, hey, it looks like Ali Abdelaziz might be breaking your rules? Oh, well, we'll look into that. And it just doesn't feel like there is anybody actually looking to do anything right. in any of these situations. Well, yeah, that's, you got to get people to care, right? Which, again, goes back to probably how this whole mess started in the first place. Uh, you get into a, a Kornheiser, Will Bond situation, situation where nobody has any money besides the manager. A lot of different stuff going on here. Anyway, this will be an interesting one to monitor, though, and if you haven't read the story at Bloody Elbow uh, by John S. Nash, you should get over there and, and check it out. It's interesting, and, and uh, we'll have to just have to see where it goes. Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff this week, and then we will uh, we'll get out of here. I don't know if you saw this, but your girl Misha Tate from last week's Are You Fucking Kidding Me or Just Saying Stuff by you? I think you're Just Saying Stuff was Misha Tate related last week. Uh, okay. She's back in the news again this week. Uh, now she's saying she wants to be the one to fight Holly Holm next, the, the new UFC women's bantamweight champion. Misha Tate says, here's why I think a fight with Holly and I make sense. For one, I haven't ever fought Holly before. For two, I was Ronda's biggest challenge until ho uh, Holly, so obviously I've proven that I'm a standout in the division, and so is Holly. If Holly would beat me, then they could still set up the great rematch that they want between her and Ronda. If I beat Holly, then I'm 5-0 and and I beat the girl who beat Ronda. What, a be what better case could they ever make to have me fight Ronda again? I think that fight sells itself. Uh, so this has been another week where I'm just saying, Misha she's not wrong in fact i might even say she's right but still probably not gonna happen you probably got a better chance of fighting jesus christ himself than getting yourself in there to fight holly holm next i'm just saying did she make these comments from a gentleman's club that's unclear I, that's what i okay. imagine in my mind that it happened at a gentleman's club yeah i now i imagine her just holding court there uh, in, in the corner. I think the... like when Misha Tate t tells you I'll be at the office, she <laughs> means that she's at the gentleman's club in her normal booth. Yeah. Smoking a cigar. Yeah, Telly Savala style. Yeah. Flinging a big silver dollar onto some waitress's tray. Uh, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, did you see Conor McGregor's Instagram post uh, about how he's... Yes. Yes, I did. He's getting ready for uh, what he expects to be a 90 to $100 million event uh, for the UFC when he takes on Jose Aldo. And his comment, I'm not a company man. I'm the company. Yes. I'm just saying, especially considering uh, some of the stuff that he's been saying recently, that sounds like a guy who might be in for some contentious contract talks at some point here in the not-so-distant future with the UFC. And I'm also just saying, that's a dude who seems like he actually has a pretty fair concept of the value he brings and his worth to the UFC, and that's the guy who's probably going to end up getting paid. I'm just saying. I think that's a guy who's probably, if he makes too much of a stink, going to get a steady diet of American wrestlers, because that's how we do around hey, here. If, you, if you're Conor McGregor and you want to pick a time to say, fuck you, pay me, 
the time is right after Ronda Rousey has been kicked in her damn neck. Yep. Good point there. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's uh, episode of the co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to, I guess, talk about all the stuff that happens at the Ben Henderson, uh, Jorge Greenbread, Masvidal fight, uh, and look ahead to whatever, whatever's going to happen in December. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Did you hurt yourself on that last game, bread? Well, yeah, you can tell I've been struggling this whole show. Yeah. I had this thing with my with my throat and my neck and my congestion. It's been going on for weeks. I'm trying to get it squared away, but still not at all. It feels like that might have been a game bread too far for you. Well, yeah, I mean, it's only the last run of the day.